This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and thank you for joining the program today, which I'm going to open with a story called the stranger who changed my life, my enemy, my friend. It's by an ex-fighter pilot with the U.S. Armed Forces by the name of Dale Selko, who served during the Kosovo War. The story goes like this. As soon as you leave Belgrade, you're transported back in time. The Serbian capital is a modern metropolis, but in the countryside, donkeys still clop along cobblestones past farmers taking their produce to market. I was here visiting a baker, Zoltan Dani, in 2011. The bakery in the town of Skorenovac is in a time-worn building next to the house where Zoltan grew up. When I walked in, I found him covered in flour and wearing a baker's hat and apron, stretching dough on a large table. He smiled and hustled over to greet me. I saluted him, stopping him in his tracks. He returned my salute, then we hugged. It could not have felt more natural. He was like my brother, this man who tried to kill me 12 years earlier. Back then, I was an F-117 stealth fighter pilot during the first week of the Serbian conflict. The year was 1999. My mission bombed the most heavily defended, high-value targets deep in enemy territory. It was a terrifying job. I knew that the people on the other side of the war felt the same. But I couldn't afford to think about them. I tried to think of my targets as just concrete and steel, with no personal attachment, no human element. That was my survival mechanism. And it worked. The first night of the war, I had two targets and hit both. I flew on the third night, which was also successful. My target on the fourth night was number one on the strategic target list. The entire route was defended with heat-seeking missiles radar-guided missiles, anti-care aircraft guns, the full array of nasty stuff. Stealth technology is not invisible technology. It just makes it harder for an aircraft to be detected. So on that fourth night, before entering Serban, Serbian airspace, I did a stealth check. I turned off lights, brought in antennae, and turned off the radio and transponder, any kind of emitter or transmitter that might give away my position. On that fourth night, I was coming up to the border, just waiting until the last moment to turn the radio off. Desperate for that call, we figured it out peacefully, you can return to base. I didn't get that radio call. I flew into Serbia, hit my target, and began my return back to the base in Italy. I didn't see the two SA-3 missiles until they punched through the cloud cover. The missiles were moving at three times the speed of sound, so there wasn't much time to react. Just before the first missile reached me, I closed my eyes and turned my head 
anticipating the impact. I knew there would be a fireball, and I didn't want to be blinded. I felt the first one go right over me, so close that it rocked the aircraft. Then I opened my eyes and turned my head, and there was the other missile. The impact was violent. A huge flash of light and heat engulfed my plane and blew off the left wing, sending the plane into a roll. If you're in an airplane that hits some turbulence and you feel a little light in your feet, you're momentarily in zero Gs. I was at negative seven Gs. My body was being pulled out of the seat upwards towards the canopy. As I strained to reach the ejection handles, one thought crossed my mind. This is really, really, really bad. From the moment I pulled the ejection handles to being under a fully inflated parachute took one and a half seconds. I made radio contact with Air Force search and rescue teams, then as I floated down to earth, watched my plane crash in a farm field. I landed a mile from there. The Serbs immediately flooded the area looking for me. At one point, they were within a couple of hundred yards of where I was hiding in an irrigation ditch separating two farm fields. My gear was under the dark green life raft from my survival equipment. Eight hours later, an American helicopter came and got me. I would later learn that I'd been minutes away from being captured. Through it all, from my fall to the long hours waiting in the field, I thought about the Serbian surface-to-air missile operator who'd shot me down. I imagined so vividly standing next to him, enjoying his company, and saying to him, Really nice shot. Twelve years later, I got the opportunity to tell him in person. I'd retired from active duty in, in 2006 and worked for the Air Force as a civilian in New Hampshire, where I'd moved with my family. It was there that I got an email from a Serbian documentary filmmaker, Zelchko Mirkovic, asking if I'd like to return to Serbia and meet Zoltan Dani, the man who'd shot me down. He wanted to make a film about the reunion. I was eager to meet Zoltan. I'd become consumed by the idea of meeting him, not as an adversary, but as a friend. I needed to explore the possibilities of reconciliation, so I said yes to Zalchko. I had, however, one big concern. The first time I was in Serbia, I was dropping bombs. How would I be received now? After the war, Zoltan retired from the Serbian army and learned to bake the thin sheets of phyllo dough used for flaky pastries. Making phyllo is hard. When Zoltan works, it's an art. He stretches the dough, then casts it into the air, deftly snaring it and splaying it out on the table in one motion. He then stretches it again until it's paper thin. At his bakery, he gave me an apron and a hat and put me to work. I was pretty good at kneading and stretching the dough, but my downfall came in tossing the dough into the air. Each time I tried, it ripped. I went through a lot of dough that day, but Zoltan didn't care. He made me feel comfortable. At one point, I noticed he had flour on his face. Without giving it a second thought, I reached over and wiped it off. When my lesson was over and I'd cleaned up, I told Zoltan I wanted to see the field where I'd hidden. Followed by Zalchko's film crew, we drove to it. Amazingly, I found the irrigation ditch where I'd spent those eight grueling hours. I even met the farmers who were working the field. 
Any fears I'd had about being treated like an enemy combatant were quickly eased. Turns out I was a local hero. The downing of my stealth fighter had been the biggest thing to happen in that area. Back at Zoltan's home, where my host insisted I take over his son's room, I presented gifts to the Dani family. I'd brought baseballs and baseball gloves for the kids and a model of an F-117 for Zoltan. He'd blown up a, wa- a real one. I figured he needed a model of it. My wife Lauren had made a quilt for Zoltan's wife, Irene, as a symbol of peace. The last gift was from one of my four children, Keegan, then nine, who was learning the violin. I had recorded him playing a Serbian tune called Svilen Konak, or Silk Thread. It was beautiful. Zoltan and I began to get to know each other. I discovered he was a gentle, tender-hearted soul, a man of faith who, like me, held his family near and dear. And, of course, we discussed that day. Zoltan was 43 and I was 40 on the night he shot me down. He said that any time his crew emitted their tracking radar longer than 20 seconds, they would shut down and move, because that would be long enough for the enemy, us, to figure out their location. And if they did it twice, they wouldn't try it again. It was too dangerous. But that night, Zoltan had a feeling. He went for a third try, and it paid off. They accomplished what no one had ever done before. They shot down a stealth fighter. After a few days, we parted ways, vowing to keep in touch. And indeed, the next year, 2012, Zoltan and his family came to New Hampshire for a week. Zaltko came as well and filmed the visit. But we barely noticed the cameras. We were friends, spending time with each other. Irene presented us with a crocheted lace tablecloth, an heirloom that had been in their family for 50 years. And Zoltan gave me a handcrafted model of a SA-3 missile. You know what this is, right? He said, grinning. I laughed. Yeah, and I remember what it feels like, too. I returned to Serbia in 2012 for the premiere of Zelchko's movie, The Second Meeting. During questions after the screening, one woman said to me, When you were shot down, I celebrated. I cheered with my friends. But we were upset that you were not killed. We thought you deserved to die. You can imagine the hush in the audience. And then she said, But now that we've gotten to know you, I'm so glad that you're here. I was weeping. There's so much misunderstanding in the world resulting in unnecessary sorrow. Having the Danis, a positive, joyful family in my life, has altered my perspective. It may sound trite, but if only they were a way for all the religious, cultural and ethnic groups of the world to meet and to get to know one another in a meaningful way, the way Zoltan and I have, How could we ever go to war again? Now, in our last few programs, we've been talking about the six-cause-and-one-effect method to develop the mind with the intention to attain enlightenment to benefit all living beings. If you were with us, you will remember that the first three causes were seeing all beings as our mothers, remembering all their kindnesses to us, and wishing to repay that kindness. Well, it struck me after reading Dal Zalko's story that if we could manage to only realize these three, never mind developing great love and compassion, it would be very hard to go to war with anyone ever again. Imagine going to war, knowing that your enemy will be your mother. Would you really be able to think you're just 
going to drop your bombs on concrete and steel? Would you even be able to clamber into the pilot's seat of the jet before the bombing raid? I don't think I could. So imagine what it would be like if you had generated bodhicitta itself, the mind that is completely focused on the temporary and ultimate welfare of all others. If all of us could develop that mind, how could we ever even consider going to war? Wouldn't it be great? All the military hawks like the infamous Dick Cheney would be out of a job and the millions who died in the world's conflicts would have lived. What's more, we would be so much better at resolving the difficulties facing us. For instance, how would governments be able to sit on their hands while global warming turned our planet into an arena for global disasters? The UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recently launched a report on measures to counteract global warming, which pointed out that the impacts of global warming are likely to be severe, pervasive and irreversible. However, if we acted now to combat it, the economic cost would be relatively modest. As Rajendra Pachuri, the IPCC chairman, said, the longer we delay, the higher would be the cost. But despite that, the point I'm making is that even now, the cost is not something that's going to bring about a major disruption of economic systems. It's well within our reach. As reported in the Huffington Post, according to the IPCC, shifting the energy system from fossil fuels to zero or low-carbon sources, like wind and solar power, would lower consumption growth by about 0.06 percentage points per year. Even the U.S. Secretary of State, John Kerry, acknowledged that the world is presently facing an economic opportunity. So many of the technologies that will help us fight climate change are far cheaper, more readily available and better performing than they were when the last IPCC assessment was released, less than a decade ago, he said, and then went on, Unless we act dramatically and quickly, science tells us our climate and our way of life are literally in jeopardy. Denial of the science is malpractice. But what is his government going to do about it? Especially when corporates like ExxonMobil, the biggest oil company in the world, solely for their own benefit, pour millions of dollars into influencing governments. In a recent report to their shareholders, ExxonMobil didn't see any decrease in the consumption of fossil fuels far into the future, even though the company acknowledged the dangers of climate change. We know enough based on the research and science that the risk of climate change is real and appropriate steps should be taken to address that risk, Ken Cohen, Exxon's government affairs chief, said in an interview. But then he neatly sidestepped taking any responsibility by saying, but given the essential role that energy plays in everyone's lives, these steps need to be taken in context with other realities we face, including lifting much of the world's population out of poverty, which, of course, ExxonMobil is intent on doing, not. Now, I really didn't want to get into a debate on climate change and governmental corruption here, but did want to point out how much merely a change of attitude would contribute to solving the many problems, some dire, that our home, the earth, faces. And many of those problems would not even have arisen, trained ourselves to see others as dear to us as our mothers, and taken on the filial responsibility for their happiness. Even those who are not Buddhists and don't believe in rebirth can develop the loving kindness and compassion for others that they have for their mothers, 
for we have an infinite capacity for such positive qualities. We only have to find a suitable method to develop that capacity. In Buddhism, we have methods like equalizing and exchanging self for others and the six cause and one effect we are going through. But now, before getting back to that, let's set our motivation as we usually do, thinking that our participation in this program may become the cause not only for our own enlightenment, but the enlightenment of all other beings as well. Thank you. It's certainly true that the more love we have, the easier we will find our relationships with other beings. I like to contrast one story told to me by a Buddhist monk from Sri Lanka about a monk and a tiger with another about some Kashmiri militants and a bear. The Sri Lankan monk told me about the other monk who lived in a cave in the forest of Sri Lanka. A tiger lived in the same cave, but because the monk was peaceful and meditated on loving-kindness, the tiger never harmed him and they lived peacefully together. The story about the militants I read in the newspaper some time ago. A group of four Kashmiri militants with assault rifles holed up in a cave and were eating when a bear appeared. It seems the cave was actually the bear's den, and it attacked the militants, killing two of them and badly wounding another. Now, of course, bears have attacked people who don't have blatantly aggressive attitudes, but I think the contrast in stories is telling. If those militants had focused on achieving their aims through peaceful, loving and compassionate means, they could still possibly be alive today. For one, not having to hide out in a bear's den, they would not have been attacked. But even if their whole attitude had been suffused with loving-kindness, it is possible that they could have occupied the cave in harmony with a bear. And if this is true with animals, then naturally it will be true for other humans, and this we can surely prove through our own experience. The more we show genuine love towards others of our species, the more friendship they will show us. The thing is that if we develop great love for all beings, other beings, whether the kind we can see or not, will be much less inclined to harm us. Even at the level of just not interfering with us, they will protect us. Of course, in some situations, the giving of love may take a long time to resolve the difficulties between people, But even then, it is better to persist with a loving attitude than develop dislike or hatred. In one interview, Nelson Mandela, who spent 27 years in South Africa's most notorious prison, Robben Island, had this to say about his experience. I've spent a long time in prison and wasted away the most productive years of my life. Those conditions would make any man very bitter and make his heart to be full of hate. There was a lot of cruelty practiced on myself and my colleagues. They were assaulted. I was never assaulted. But you must understand that the warders were themselves workers, were human beings with problems, who are also exploited, also victims of the system, and one of our objectives was to ensure that we improve the relations between ourselves and these warders, help them with their own problems. And in that way, you forget about anything that is negative, like hate. You are dealing with human beings and you want to live in peace with these people. You want them also to go and spread the same message to their own people as we want to spread to our own people. And in that situation, it is very difficult to find room for hate. We all know the impact that attitude had on apartheid. 
Then the fourth benefit of love is that we will have mental peace and happiness. As Tipton Chodron says, when the mind is full of hurt, anger and hatred, the mind is painful. But when the mind is loving, there is a lot of internal peace. Again, we probably don't have to talk much about this because our own experiences inform us of it. When we give love out and are surrounded by people who return our love, even if things go wrong, we can feel supported and relatively at peace. Remember the Buddhist master, Kirti Tsentsa who was diagnosed with terminal liver cancer and used it in his practice of Tonglen, taking on suffering and giving away happiness. Even when he was in hospital dying, people, not only his disciples but also strangers, wanted to be with him because he was so serene, so happy and so concerned for others' well-being. Then the fifth benefit of love is that we will experience physical peace and happiness. Says Tupton Children, our body will be more relaxed. You can see that when the mind is full of negative emotions, the body is tense. When the mind is full of love, the body is relaxed. So I think meditating on love can be a very good way to prevent and remedy health problems because it really helps to relax the body-mind together. A number of studies have shown that people in good relationships with others do experience greater well-being. The website medicinenet.com lists 10 health benefits of a calm, stable love based on such studies. Although most of the studies focus on close relationships formed by marriage, we can probably extend the results to any relationships based on genuine love. And so a study by the U.S. Health and Human Services Department on Marriage and Health found that married people have fewer doctor visits and shorter average hospital stays. Dr. Harry Rice, co-author of the Encyclopedia of Human Relationships, said that nobody knows why loving relationships are good for health, but he speculated that as humans are crafted by evolution to live in closely knit social groups, when we are isolated, our biological systems become overwhelmed. Another theory is that people who relate well with each other take better physical care of themselves due to pressure from those around them. Another finding of the report is that people in good married relationships experience less depression than those that are socially isolated, which may not be so surprising. But being in a good relationship also means less chance of being involved with heavy drinking and drug abuse. A third benefit is lower blood pressure. A study in the Annals of Behavioral Medicine found that happily married people had the best blood pressure followed by singles. Unhappily married people fared the worst. It's marital quality and not the fact of marriage that makes a difference, according to Dr. Rice. And the website concluded that that supports the idea that other positive relationships can have similar benefits. In fact, singles with a strong social network also did well in the blood pressure study. The website says further, when it comes to anxiety, a loving, stable relationship is superior to a new romance. Researchers at the State University of New York at Stony Brook used functional MRI scans to look at the brains of people in love. They compared passionate new couples with strongly connected long-term couples. Both groups showed activation in a part of the brain associated with intense love. It's the dopamine reward area, the same area that responds to cocaine or winning a lot of money, says Arthur Aaron, PhD, one of the study's authors. But there were striking differences between the two groups in other parts of the brain. 
In long-term relationships, you also have activation in the areas associated with bonding and less activation in the area that produces anxiety. The website further reads, The MRI study reveals another big perk for long-term couples, more activation in the part of the brain that keeps pain under control. A CDC report complements this finding. In a study of more than 127,000 adults, married people were likely less likely to complain of headaches and back pain. A small study published in Psychological Science adds to the intrigue. Researchers subjected 16 married women to the threat of an electric shock. When the women were holding their husband's hand, they showed less response in the brain areas associated with stress. The happier the marriage, the greater the effect. The site also quotes a study from Carnegie Mellon University published in Psychosomatic Medicine that compared people who were happy and calm with those who were anxious, hostile or depressed. The study found that people who exhibit positive emotions are less likely to get sick after being exposed to cold or flu viruses. And when the Ohio State University Medical Center gave married couples blister wounds, they found that people who interacted warmly with each other healed nearly twice as fast as those who were hostile towards each other. And a further study on longevity found that people who feel loved and connected live longer than others. Dr. Rice concluded, Loneliness is associated with all-cause mortality, dying for any reason. The indications are all that if we generate a warm-hearted love, even for one other, like a partner, spouse or close friend, we will obtain many physical benefits. So imagine how it would be if we could develop the same warm-hearted affection for everyone we come across. In the Karuna Metta Sutra, the Buddha called such love the sublime abiding. The sixth benefit of love mentioned in the text is that we will not be harmed by weapons and poisons. Tubson Children recalls the story of the Buddha and Nalagiri, the rogue elephant the Devadatta sent to kill him. As the mad elephant is charging towards the Buddha, the Buddha is just sitting there, being who he, who he was, a loving human being, says Tubson Children. Then the elephant fell on its knees and bowed to the Buddha. So there is some power of love to transform the situation. She then goes on to list the final two benefits. She says, The seventh benefit is that effortlessly you will establish your aims. We can see why we can bring about our spiritual aims, our virtuous aims, when we have a loving mind. First of all, when we act in a loving way, other people are going to help us to have the practical things that we need to bring out about our aims. Also, karmically, when we have a loving mind, we purify so much karma created by hatred that we cease obstacles. We create so much good karma through having that kind mind, and this karma becomes the principal cause for all of our virtuous activ activities to go ahead. So you can see that these are not unreasonable claims that are being made. There is reason behind them. The eighth benefit of love is that you will be reborn in the world of Brahma. Brahma is one of the celestial beings who lives in great delight and great pleasure. They say that for as many sentient beings as you cultivate love towards that many eons you will be born in the realm of Brahma. If, as Mahayana practitioners, we cultivate love towards all sentient beings, then it leads not just to rebirth in the realm of Brahma, but to non-abiding nirvana, in other words, to full Buddhahood. When we think about a spiritual person, 
Isn't having a kind heart one of the first qualities we think of? And there we must end the program today for Time is Up. Once again, thank you for joining us and I hope you'll do so next week. As usual, before we go, please dedicate any positive potential we've accumulated from the program to the enlightenment of all living beings. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.